Welcome to Local Bites, the podcast of local futures and the economics of happiness, where we feature critical voices and inspiring examples from the global movement for localization. We're tracking ideas and initiatives that resist corporate power, renew place-based economies, and preserve human and ecological well-being. I'm Sean Keller. The topic of today's episode... The brief, sad story of GDP (laughs) and the happy alternative. That was Richard Heinberg, senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute. He's been an outspoken advocate for shifting away from fossil fuels and facing down the world's energy and climate crises. This is from a talk that he gave at our Economics of Happiness conference in Port Townsend, Washington, in 2017. Well, it all started not that long ago in the 19th century, early 20th century, as society began to transition to fossil fuels, and particularly here in the U.S., firewood was our our dominant fuel source until the mid-1880s, and increasing consumption of coal then took over as that became our, our dominant energy source, and then later in the middle of the 20th century, oil. And these fossil energy sources gave us enormous quantities of highly portable, concentrated energy with which we could do all kinds of things. We could power food production, manufacturing, heat our homes, offices and factories and everything else. One of the consequences was we could make stuff faster and distribute it further and faster than ever was possible before in all of human history. Tracking humanity's shifting energy use and its impact on our lives has been a big part of Richard's work, and he's explored it over the course of an impressive 13 books. In one of his essays from his 2015 book, Afterburn, he goes into the consequences of our switch to fossil fuels in more detail. In the early days of fossil fuels, it didn't take much of an investment of time and resources to extract a lot of energy, something that isn't the case now when we need to rely on high-risk, high-cost methods like fracking to even get to the world's remaining oil jackpots. The industrial economies of the world were built on the assumption that we would never run out of fossil fuels. And though that's still technically true, as Richard notes in his book, it's getting to the point where the amount of energy we need to use up to extract fossil fuels will be equal to the amount of energy those fossil fuels provide. This will demand a shift away from fossil fuels whether we like it or not. And Richard's feeling is, why not plan for that transition to a post-carbon economy and try to manage it, rather than letting it sneak up on us? But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's jump back to the start of the Industrial Revolution. So with a few, you know, inventions and innovations to take advantage of all of this energy, innovations like planes, trains, and automobiles, and also powered assembly lines, we had the capacity then to grow production and consumption. But at first, there were some things standing in in the way. One was that people just weren't used to buying so much stuff. They didn't realize that they needed a whole lot of consumer products. So that was a problem that had to be solved, and it was solved starting in the 1920s with the creation of a huge new industry called advertising. 
and it entailed some uh, subsidiary strategies like planned obsolescence, making stuff so that it would break down, convincing people that in order to be attractive and happy and so on, they needed the latest version of a whole array of, of consumer products and so on. But then there was another problem, which was even when people started to want more stuff, they couldn't afford to buy it at least not all at once, particularly big ticket items like automobiles. So the other huge innovation was consumer credit, making it easier for people to go into debt to buy now and pay later, you know, consume now and then assume all this debt with interest and so on. These were the foundations of what would become after World War II, the growth economy. That growth economy has now ballooned into something monstrous. We are overshooting the planet's biological capacity by about 60%, essentially using resources as though we had access to one and a half Earths. If we look just at industrialized countries, the overshoot is even greater. They use three times their fair share of the Earth's biocapacity. The ecological consequences have been terrible. Urban and suburban sprawl, loss of biodiversity, exacerbated climate change, all of which would be much easier to fight if governments weren't focused on trying to constantly grow the economy. There are social consequences as well, for example, corporations brutally grabbing land from peasant farmers in the global south, free trade agreements that strip away labor protections from workers, all of which help grow this abstract thing called the economy, but do nothing to actually help people. Now, in 1934, in the midst of the Great Depression, one of the causes of which, by the way, was overproduction, making stuff faster than people could, could buy it. So during the Great Depression, of course, economists were trying to figure out what to do about that problem. And one of the economists who was active during that period was a guy named Simon Kuznets. And in 1934, he wrote an important paper in which he introduced the idea of gross domestic product, which is just a monetary measure of all goods and services produced within a certain period, usually a year, and, and within a political boundary, typically the nation. So this, he said, should not be used as a measure of the welfare of the people in the country or even of the welfare of the economy per se, he said it could be, perhaps, a useful indicator among others. Now, previous to this time, the idea of the economy as a thing really didn't exist. You know, during the 18th century, 19th century, economies grew and contracted and so on, but it was, you know, it was all mysterious, and economists were starting to talk about the, the factors that enabled that to happen. But there, there was no such thing as governments trying to manage this thing called the economy. So after World War II, there is the Bretton Woods Conference, which creates the basic economic framework for the post-World War II era. And at Bretton Woods, the idea of GDP as a measure of 
economic progress and go therefore governmental success in managing the economy is generally accepted. And from that moment on, 1945 on to the present, basically governments have accepted GDP as the primary measure of how we're all doing. Now, already, even in the early days, there were those who said, you know, there's some problems with that. GDP, after all, is only a monetary measure, right? And so things that don't get monetized, that don't get bought and sold, are completely left out. And then there are, you know, ways of spending money that may increase the GDP, but may actually not improve people's lives or be considered successful. But there's also the question of can GDP expand forever? The assumption was at that point and has been pretty much up, up to the present among almost all economists, the assumption was that the environment is basically an endless source of stuff and the object of the economy and the managers of the economy, therefore government, is to increase the rate at which we turn the natural world into products and therefore then into waste, increase that rate endlessly. Now, there were some who saw some problems with that. Starting in the 1970s, an economist named Herman Daly introduced the idea of ecological economics. And he said, you know, this is patently absurd. We live on a finite planet. Early in the 1970s, there had been a report by a group called Club of Rome. Uh, they published a book called The Limits to Growth. It was based on computer modeling of systems dynamics analysis, looking at you know, food production, looking at uh, availability of raw materials, the production of waste from industrial processes, and so on. And when they modeled these things, their standard run scenario tended to show a peak and decline in world industrial production around the end of the first quarter of the 21st century, which is just about where we are right now. At the time it was written, the backlash to the book Limits to Growth was vitriolic. The New York Times called it empty and misleading and less than pseudoscience. Economics professor Wilfred Beckerman of Oxford University dubbed it a brazen, impudent piece of nonsense. It was panned by The Economist, Forbes, Foreign Affairs, Yale, Princeton, Harvard, MIT. Eventually, U.S. President Ronald Reagan started referencing the book in his speeches, saying it was offensive to the American dream. But over the last decade, the book has inspired a resurgence of the movement for economic degrowth, a movement to fix the overshoot of the industrialized world by localizing economic activity and reach a kind of equilibrium where the economy operates within Earth's biophysical limits, rather than constantly trying to push beyond them. Some economists have argued that technology and industrialization will decouple economic growth from resource use. In other words, we'll be able to keep growing the economy on paper, 
without turning the planet into a wasteland. But this hasn't really happened in practice, despite our best efforts. And even in those cases where growth has become more efficient, and the amount of energy and resources needed per unit of growth has gone down, our ecological footprint has continued to balloon. This has to do with something called the Javons Paradox, named after economist William Stanley Javons who first proposed it, which basically says that in an economy where growth is the main goal, being more efficient at growing doesn't lead to conservation, it just gives you a convenient excuse to use those resources you just saved to grow even more. So when you get to the root of the problem, it isn't inefficiency that's keeping us from living within the planet's limits, it's the growth imperative itself. And so, interestingly, we are actually starting to see a slowdown in world industrial output. Growth is still happening, at least on paper. We, we had a little hiccup back in 2008, you may remember, the global financial crisis. But the central banks of the world patched together the, the pieces with massive increases in their balance sheets. In other words, they were effectively pumping trillions of dollars into the global economy. The global economy shuddered and shook for a while, but it's been slowly growing since then, uh, nowhere near the rate of growth that would be predicted on the basis of the massive injection of money from the, the central banks. But, you know, at least it's not collapsing, right? So we must be doing something right. The medicine is itself, you know, toxic. What, what all of that injection of capital did was to create financial, new financial bubbles, which many economists agree we're, we're seeing right now in various areas, real estate in the US, in China, Canada, tech uh, industry has another bubble going on, et cetera, et cetera. The fossil fuel industry uh, is running on debt and fumes. This, this is a problem. If growth can't go on forever and we're actually seeing it slowing down and, it's, and we've been measuring well-being according to GDP, then what are we going to do? Clearly, one of the answers has to be getting off of GDP as our primary measure of human well-being and development. If we're not growing anyway, then why bother focusing on something that we can't improve, right? Why not focus on what we can improve? And it makes sense anyway, because by taking our attention away from what actually makes communities work, makes people happy, and focusing it laser-like on this monetary measure, we've actually not improved people's lives. And they're the measures of actual report, self-reported human happiness over the past few decades have shown clearly, you know, once people have their basic needs met, the correlation between life satisfaction and GDP is very fuzzy. It's all over the map. Every year since the end of World War II, a poll has asked U.S. citizens if they are happy with their life. The number of Americans who respond yes peaked in 1956 and has gone downhill ever since then, despite the United States being the world's largest economy as measured by nominal GDP. On average, the data we have for the US from the last several decades 
shows no correlation between GDP growth and reported well-being. And according to the Happy Planet Index, published by the New Economics Foundation, the U.S. currently ranks 108th in terms of happiness, while tiny Costa Rica, with a per capita GDP less than one-fifth that of the U.S., comes in at number one. So if we care about the well-being of people, we shouldn't be making economic decisions based on GDP. That much seems clear. The question then is what should we measure? Gross national happiness is, of course, an idea that was pioneered by the nation of Bhutan, which has, through the United Nations, made some efforts in recent years to suggest that other countries pick that up as well. Herman Daly and others also have worked on a set of indicators called the Genuine Progress Indicator, which is a little complicated to figure out, but it includes you know, environmental factors, social factors, and so on. But it's being used by the states of Maryland and Vermont and the state of Washington also. As economic growth comes to an end and likely reverses over the course of the next few years and, and decades, we have the opportunity actually to make life better if that's what we focus on. If we continue to focus just on GDP, not only will governments fail, but people will translate that as, as misery. So this is, this is a, a, a turning point, one way or the other. The old system is not going to work much longer. But we do have the opportunity to trade that old system out for something very different and something that will almost certainly serve us much better. You can find Richard's articles all across the web, but many of them are collected on resilience.org and on postcarbon.org. If you want to learn more about what a degrowth economy would look like, I recommend going to localfutures.org blog and reading the entry life in a degrowth economy, and why you might actually enjoy it. If you'd like to dive deeper into the history of the economic growth debate, check out From Growth to Degrowth, A Brief History, also on our blog. All these links and others can be found in the description for this episode on localfutures.org. There you can also subscribe to this podcast and listen to or download other episodes. Thanks for listening to Local Bites. 